0: Welcome back to Word and Table, a weekly podcast on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship, and why it is vital in our world today. I'm your host, Alex Wilgus, and I am here as always with Father Stephen Gauthier. Welcome
1: back, Father Stephen. Great to be back, Alex.
0: Father Stephen is the canon theologian of the Diocese of the Upper Midwest in the Anglican Church in North America, and he is Director of Formation at St. Paul's House of Formation in the Greenhouse Movement. Father Stephen, this week let's talk a little bit about um, the language that we use for our liturgy. And of course, in the Anglican Church, our liturgy comes from the Book of Common Prayer, and there's something actually kind of interesting about Folks, uh, especially folks from an evangelical background, when they open up the Book of Common Prayer, everything's you know in English. But once in a while, you'll get a Latin phrase here and there, usually kind of a title or a subtitle of something that we're doing. So, for instance, in the Psalter, um, the Psalms are numbered, but also. Uh, there's a little Latin, little Latin title there. So like Psalm 95, which we say a lot, um, is also called the Venite or the Venite exultemus. Um, um, you know, or Psalm 82, for instance, Deus de Um Especially for non-Latin speakers like myself, I, I don't know if you could tell that, um, but uh, it, it can be kind of confusing as, you know, uh, if we're worshiping in English, why do why does why do these little Latinisms pop up here and there? And it kind of opens up on the larger question of really what is the story of the language that has been used uh, to celebrate the liturgy to worship in Christian churches from the beginning? Um, you know, we know, of course, that uh, in in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, the, 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 the liturgy was celebrated in Latin right up until the Reformation, of course, which we're so proud of. And then after that, we kind of have, uh, reformed churches using, um, vernacular languages and the Roman Catholic church continuing to hang on to Latin until, uh, until the 20th century. Um, so, uh, you know, it's just, it's a really interesting history that, that I'd love for our listeners to be able to dive into you know, and especially talking about the place of Latin in the liturgy and why it was celebrated that way for so long, um, why it leads to the reform. And then finally, what causes the Roman church to, you know, turn around and and do what we're doing, which is, you know, adopt uh, vernacular languages um, for liturgical purposes. But I might av- actually need to push you uh, a little further back to the beginning, Father Stephen, because we know that uh, the Christian church came out of Jewish worship, you know, in the synagogue. So maybe we could actually, if we can push it back that far, you know, how did Jews worship and what language did they use and did anything change for them?
1: Well, that's a really good place to start. Uh, Jews take it as a given. They worshiped in their own language, which was Hebrew. They were Hebrews and the language they spoke was Hebrew. But later on, especially with the, in, uh, with the Babylonian exile and things, is gradually there's a language called Aramaic which became the, what English is today. It was the English of the Middle East, so to speak, of that whole area, Iran, Iraq, these kind of things. These people spoke Aramaic. It's a language that's related to Hebrew. Uh, okay. But they actually replaced it. People no longer, regular folks, didn't speak Hebrew anymore. You might remember in the book of Ezra when they come back and they read the law, yeah. and it says the priests interpreted it to them. They're not talking about giving sermons. They're talking about literally telling what it meant in Aramaic okay that's <laughs> what so most scholars think you are telling what it means in Aramaic and so what happened is there's a principle that's enunciated in the Talmud that says a Jew can pray in any language however Hebrew is to be preferred hmm. okay and that because it's the original language of the scriptures you know all the Old Testament except for some some portions of Ezra and Daniel are written in Hebrew it's the language of revelation so a Jew can pray in any language However, you know the for liturgical worship of things, Hebrew is the preferred language for jews to um to use
0: so the um so Aramaic in jesus' time this is this is the common language of of Jews you can pray in it, but it's but hebrew is is, is preferred so we've got preferential treatment there, but no one's going around speaking ancient Hebrew.
1: Yeah. Matter of fact, when they mention Hebrew twice in the New Testament, it doesn't mean Hebrew in the Hebrew language. It means the language spoken by Hebrews, yeah, <laughs> meaning Aramaic, yeah. as opposed to Greek. Okay. So uh, we actually have Aramaic as the language of Jesus. And a number of times we have quotations that are in Aramaic. Rabuni is Aramaic for, you know, my teacher instead of rabbi. Rabuni is the Aramaic form of rabbi. You know, there are things like that that come up that are, that are Aramaic expressions from actual speech. What's sort of funny is in synagogues what had to happen is as only educated people knew Hebrew anymore, you know, had to be specially trained, is, and Jews normally, because Jews normally would speak the language of the people they lived among throughout history. Like Yiddish is, uh, everyone knows Yiddish the language of modern Jews until the Second World War. Yiddish is just German. It's Jewish-German. <laughs> okay. It's, it's a form of German. It's not Hebrew. It just has a lot of Hebrew words in it from loans that they took over. But what happened is what do you do in synagogue um, in a case like this is because when people are reading these Torah scrolls, uh, regular people wouldn't have a clue what they were saying. So they end up giving giving instantaneous translations they'd follow in. And originally Mm -hmm. these weren't supposed to be written down, but they ended up being written down. Some of them are really important. They were called targums. A targum meant that when they read the Hebrew, here's what we would then read in Aramaic or say in Aramaic so people would know what's going on. Hmm. okay it was sort of fun with targums not only could it tell us a lot about the text but sometimes they really they sort of come up with a better story i mean in a sense they sort of embroider you yeah. know and sort of stretch it out a little bit uh but those are targums which are very important in biblical studies and we also have there's one special dialect of aramaic you know like we all speak english whether we're in england or united states but we call you know they're different dialects but they're still english mm-hmm. is a special language of um, aramaic in syria was called syriac Hmm. it's Aramaic just a type of Aramaic and we have something called a Peshitta and a Peshitta is the same thing as a Targum it kept to the Syriac so we have all these original sort of uh, what's give me some examples like in English we have these subtranslations that are not really translate like the message
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, like the message. Yeah,
1: <laughs> They're sort of like that, like the message type of thing.
0: So they're embe- uh, they're kind of paraphrased and embellished in some places.
1: <laughs> right. Okay. And then we have the he- the Hebrew Bible itself had to be translated into Greek because most Jews couldn't read Hebrew. And for most people who lived outside of the Holy Land, the language they spoke was Greek. So they actually had to translate the Bible into Greek for Jews who okay. no longer spoke Hebrew. It wasn't for us. This was done long before Jesus.
0: Well, and that's the Septuagint, right? The, the... Right.
1: The, book, the Bible of the 70s, the Septuagint. That's right.
0: Okay, so, and this, of course, the the Septuagint is often what's quoted in the New Testament.
1: Yeah, because that's the, that's the one everyone knew.
0: <laughs> okay, so we've got translation going on, even if it's not officially um, ratified from the very beginning. We've got a need for translation and worship. So let's talk about the early church, um, you know uh, how did, what, what language did the early church worship in and, and why did they worship in the language that they did?
1: Well, in the Mediterranean basin, that whole Mediterranean sea area is people spoke Latin in the West, but everybody in the, in the East spoke Greek, the Eastern Mediterranean and most educated Romans learned Greek. Greek came to be used as a language that anybody, it's the English of the ancient world that way. And no matter where you are, you could always find somebody who spoke Greek anywhere in the Mediterranean, somebody spoke Greek. And so as a practical matter for evangelism, our people coming from the Eastern Mediterranean, our apostles and things spoke Greek. And all the cities had traders and traders had to use an international language. So everybody could speak Greek. I mean, the people who were in those kind of things. So Christianity spreads using the Greek language and everybody simply used Greek, including in Rome itself. The church in Rome used Greek into the second century. Actually probably into the early third century. So even in Rome they didn't use Latin, they used Greek, because that's something even if you're passing through Rome, everybody knew Greek. You know, the idea that everybody would be able to speak that language.
0: Okay. So this is like this is just a very practical language to be speaking. Like this is gonna yeah. be understood everywhere.
1: Yeah, unlike unlike Jews who thought there's a really important thing that this is the original language of the scriptures, you know, Hebrew, the language of God. People didn't have that kind of fuzzy feeling about Greek because the New Testament was written in it. Yeah, it was. It was completely in the West. It was completely pragmatic in the West that we use Greek. Okay, it's just it was it was just the language people tended to use. Also, it might help the fact that a lot of the New Testament, if you know Greek, is not highly literary. Some are. So some amazing things like Hebrews and things that are really really well written. But some of them is really pretty, pretty basic Greek.
0: Right. It's called Koine, right? Koine. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. it's kind of yeah, kind of uh, uh chopped up a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Um so the so that kind of sounds like that the when we're using Greek in the church, this is because people understand it, right? There's not this special oh, relationship with Greek. Yeah. No
1: thought that it, no thought that this was a holy language. It was just what people used in the church it was a traditional language that used people used in church. Sure. Matter of fact, what we find next, Alex, is by the like the early third century, late second early third century, that's not true anymore. And so people say, "Well, of course we have to go to Latin." Actually, they didn't have they had have a Greek church there. They had some people who couldn't couldn't speak Latin, but the basic church in Rome goes to Latin. Okay, so, so they go to they use Latin because that's what people understood now, and that's not a holy language. The Bible wasn't written in Latin, right? <laughs> Just language Romans speak.
0: Yeah, yeah. So the so the 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 move to to using Latin in worship in the beginning, was simply as a pragmatic matter. You know, everybody's now speaking Latin. Obviously, the liturgy's going to be in Latin.
1: Yeah. Now, later on, people desperately tried, much later on, centuries later, to say, how could Latin, which is a pragmatic language uh, for religious purposes, suddenly become holy? They said, well, on the cross of Jesus, the the inscription was Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. I guess that makes some holy languages. Yeah. (laughs) Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Sure. That's a much later idea. People here just did it because, uh, you know, gee, we're Romans and that's what language we speak. And of course, we would worship in the language we speak.
0: So how do, but we, we do get a Latin Bible though, right?
1: You get a Latin Bible because we needed that. If you're going to have a liturgy, you need you need to have the scriptures translate. Most of the liturgy comes from the Bible and you have a standard version. So they, they had St. Jerome translates the Bible into, a re, there were existing Latin translations, but they were really very iffy. And so Pope uh, Damasus said, look, we need a really good translation. Jerome was the man and he did a beautiful job. He has the Latin Vulgate, basically the the King James of the Latin world, you know, was the authorized version for Latin speakers. Got it.
0: Okay. So, um, so Latin is the language that people are speaking around this time uh, in the West. So that's what we use. But, um... Latin hangs on for a while, <laughs> as, as we know, um, as the liturgical language in you know in the West and in Europe. But it, it goes way beyond people actually speaking it every day. So let, let's talk about why that was. So why does why does Latin hang on all the way to the Reformation in the liturgy uh, before um, b- before we we start to have major Christian churches worshiping differently.
1: Well, for the same reason you get new clothes every year when you're a kid, is you keep changing, you keep growing. You know, you can't wear, you know, when you're five-year-old, you can't wear your three-year-old clothes, you're too big. And so languages change. And so what happens originally, Latin is intelligible, you know, around the thing, But naturally, and this is a place where you don't have modern communications, you don't have movies and things that keep languages standardized, is people use these languages. And more and more people learn them. And, and so the languages begin to naturally change. As languages do. And so what we have here is people um, uh, are speaking the language, but they are no longer can understand one another. It's like this. Roughly speaking, this is an old uh, truism. It's not exactly true, but it's the, basically the, the fundamental notion is true. If you started with Latin in the south, uh, say, in middle Italy, okay, and you went all the way up into northern France, you mm. know, and you went up, every village would understand the village next to it. You know, they would speak a little bit differently in things. But by the time, the farther you went away, you get to a point where you can't understand each other anymore. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, they they, they began to differ, and they become very localized. They, they changed in their own way locally, depending on who the original people were, how they learned language. They were starting to change a lot. Now, the trouble is, people, at first, you'd say, well, well why don't you just change? Well, they still think they were speaking Latin. It's sort of funny. You know, they didn't call it Latin. They called <clears> it, they spoke Roman, Okay, language yeah, yeah. of the Romans. They spoke Roman. And that's where we get the idea of romance languages because in Old French, the word for Roman was romance. Yeah. And so if you ask them, what language, we speak Roman. Okay. So that's what they call their language. And they thought they were speaking the same language. But they weren't.
0: So you're seeing that as the Middle Ages start to happen, you get people starting to kind of take on their own local dialects of Latin um, and that's where you start to get romance languages, which are now, you know, French and Italian and Spanish. But people didn't know it at the time. They just thought they were speaking Latin?
1: Yeah, they were okay. speaking Roman. Yeah, there's something different. They had no idea that, you know, and if you went far enough away, you'd, they'd be mutually unintelligible. But they thought everyone thought they were basically, they're just versions of, it's like this. Latin had great um, cultural prestige, right? Because of the language of the empire. Well, think about Arabic. A lot of people don't realize Arabic is not comprehensible. A person in Morocco can't understand someone from Jordan, but they all, why do they all want to say they speak Arabic? Yeah. Because the differences are as big as between uh, Italian or French. They're different languages. Why? Is because Arabic has, is really a prestigious language because it's the language of the Quran. You know, everyone mm. wants to speak the language of the Prophet and the Quran. Well, everyone wanted to think they were associated with the Romans. You know, so everybody's version was, well, we're actually just speaking Latin. So it goes on, and what they would do is when people begin speaking differently, when the priest would read Latin, he would say things like you would say it in the other language, even though it was written differently in Latin slightly. wouldn't replace it on a translation. For example, in Latin, you'd say something like et means and. In French, you'd say eh, you know. Yeah, so when he's yeah. reading Latin, he'd say eh. He'd just pronounce it like the French way. I see and he would you know he'd make big changes because more and more of the changes like in the french the the, the endings drop off they drop off the end you know they would sure and so they would read the text as though it were a different language
0: all right well, that's fascinating so the text is still latin but the way that they're reading it starts to take on the flavor of their region
1: yeah takes on the flavor and they make adjustments and endings fall off and things when they're actually reading it out loud to make it sound so it's intelligible and then everything breaks down. How does it break down? Well, Charlemagne, it, 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 you know, he's crowned in 800. So we're to be, you know, in the turn of the eighth and ninth centuries. Charlemagne said, I want a really united empire. So we got to standardize things as much as we can. We have to get more unity. So he brings this, this great scholar from England, a great Anglican, Alcuin, a great scholar, and he said, who was one of the world's best Latinists at the time. And he says, I would like you to sort of clean up uh, you know, the liturgy. And he goes in there and he says, you know, people ought to pronounce Latin correctly. He's saying, well, I'm going to church and everybody's pronouncing this strange. So he comes up and says, look, let's insist upon people actually pronouncing Latin as Latin. Hmm. Well, guess what happens? It's really amazing. People go to church and say, what's that? They can't understand it. And they say, well, that's, that's, that's your language. That's Latin or Roman. And he says, no, it isn't. He said, well, no, no, that is, I guess you don't speak that anymore. (laughs) <laughs> this is how people discovered overnight that they didn't speak Latin.
0: <laughs> That's wild.
1: <laughs> they discovered overnight. Wow, who knew? <laughs>
0: <laughs> so they basically just show up and all of a sudden the uh, all the kind of um, local variations have been stripped away and now you've got this kind of you know pure Latin again and people are like, oh, wait, uh, <laughs> we're speaking something totally different now. Imagine
1: you came to church one Sunday. I think of uh, everybody probably at one time studied the Canterbury Tales. Right, right. Yeah. In Natavril, when he's shower sota. The, the draught of March of Persed to the rota Persen and Bab. Oh, yeah. you're so much better. Yeah. <laughs> if we said that now, if you said that in modern English, imagine if they read, they'd say, in that April uh, where, where showers occurred, you know, what is it? The uh, the, um, the rains the, of April yeah, have, the, have, the, have the, soaked the down to the roots.
0: The frost of March. It has pierced the frost of March to the roots or whatever. Yeah. Mm hmm. So,
1: but if they start saying that no one has a clue what they're saying. Yeah. <laughs> and so I said, well, I guess we don't speak, we don't speak Latin anymore. Okay. Oh,
0: wow. So they, they, so people get a, a, a rude awakening to the, to the linguistic drift that they've been on for a At while. At church,
1: now, I know the universities, they speak a standard Latin for universities, mm-hmm. but you know, nev- people never did that in the churches. And so no one's think you know, it says, if you're going to start speaking like that, uh, you know, people just assume, wow, okay, whatever.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. So, okay, so if we've already got these vernacular languages, um, you know, forming, then uh, why does it take so long for the liturgy to get translated into them? Um, why why, Why does Latin hang on as the liturgical language for so long?
1: Well, the initial problem for centuries is there was nothing else to translate into is these things were all very localized. You know, all these localized dialects that were not mutually understandable. And so it wasn't like, well, we'll just translate into French. There was no French. There was no English. There were all sorts of different languages, you know, that were related closely to one another, but they are very different. And so it just didn't seem practical. So, uh, you know, you use langu- Latin for university work. You used it for contracts and things. So people who needed that kind of thing could simply use Latin. But for other purposes, uh, there was nothing else to really translate into. I see. Okay.
0: So wait. So these these languages are kind of forming, but they haven't. The but they're 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 just you're saying there's just too much variation between at, at this point. Like we don't have like sort of standard American English or sort of good like good French at this point. This is this is all
1: kind of developing and changing. Yeah, it's a combination of different dialects sort of competing with one another. There's no standard language. I but see. what starts happening as we get to the end of the Middle Ages we, and start having the, the Renaissance comes, is people start, and we have a rise of a whole new class of people, merchants and things are becoming really important. They're getting money and power and things. And norm, they start wanting to use, for practical purposes, using regular languages, real hmm. spoken languages. And as people begin doing this, even though they're localized, we start standardizing locally in local areas, people get the idea that, you know, like in France, the king's court speaks a certain language, right? There's a way they speak, you know, in that place. Why don't we make that the standard, you know, sort of use that? And so like in the Renaissance, actually, uh, Francis I in France declares that from now on we're going to use, in courts, we're going to use French instead of English, Uh, rather, Latin, rather. Mm. He abolishes Latin courts. Let's just use French. Huh. And the what do you mean by French? There's all sorts of the French that we speak at the court. So now we actually have a real standard, something you can measure against, you know, something you could write books in. And even if you speak something different at home, you could still say it's easier than learning Latin. So the people have the idea, here's the language I speak at home. It's, it's very similar to French, but and here's the official, like the high form of the language, the literary language that everybody learns. And okay. so now for the first time, it becomes possible for people. Everybody understands the central language. You know the the standard language that I actually have a regular modern language I can translate into.
0: Okay, okay. So, so, but up until that time when these vernacular languages start become standardized, Latin operates as a kind of a because it's not it because it isn't changing. um, It actually serves to unify all of these different kind of group language groups that you know their own languages um are just there there's too much ferment in them for them to be you know mutually intelligible
1: yes Hmm.
0: okay so i guess you're saying that it's an advantage that latin's dead at this point (laughs) because it's because it didn't change on it's out of the river right it's stable it's Uh, the
1: one thing that we can count on that we could just learn the standard thing this foreign language all of us can learn this as a practical way to communicate with each other
0: okay so that's so it, so that's why it's in the link it, it's in the liturgy for, for so long um, but I'll, I'll say this though I mean that that's a very practical explanation but um you know it, it at least today, still in some ways, it kind of feels like when people prefer the liturgy to be in Latin even in, even today, it has more it, it has more to do with it sort of feels spiritual in some way. so like how does that happen how do we get how do we get Latin kind of becoming uh so it feels it just feels more holy in some cases so how does that work?
1: Well, what happens is that people begin again. There was the understanding, we the church, you'd understand what was going on. Is people get used to the fact that we have this language now that, you know, that's very ancient. It's associated with the Romans, it's associated with the church, that it's sacred in a very special holy way, sort of a mystical way. It's holy. And so Latin gets a reputation now of, because remember, Hebrew makes sense because it's the language of the Bible. Mm-hmm. you know Greek makes sense it's a language of the Bible but Latin was just a language it was a language of the Roman Empire but it wasn't a religious language Later on to try to explain this holiness some people tried to say, well it's sacred in this way there are three holy languages worthy of God because they're mentioned in the Bible specifically oh, uh, on the on the cross Jesus Jesus of Nazareth's king of the Jews we were told was written in Latin Greek and Aramaic Latin Greek and Hebrew rather and therefore they're saying those are the holy languages so they tried to make Latin holy but that's not how it started Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing holy about Latin, it was just it was language of the Roman Empire. It was a, uh it was a hallowed language in the sense that it was very revered because of its history, but it wasn't a sacred language like Hebrew or Greek.
0: Yeah. Okay, so so obviously so you know you you touched on this briefly. So but what changes at the Reformation? So uh, I I I assume you know at least we'll, we'll talk about the linguistic Angle here, but how does it all of a sudden become possible or feasible to translate into vernacular languages now?
1: Well, now that we have developed a You know a central form of a language like English, you know language spoken at court, you know, this will be this will be English You can actually write books in this and things, you know that and people are really buying into this Um, Suddenly it becomes possible because people are learning this you can easily learn another form of your own language you can learn a more, another form of English. You know, you, it wouldn't take you, if you go to England where they speak differently, you have a different accent, you know, a few words and things, you can pick that up pretty easy as opposed to going to Russia. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's good. You're gonna, going to pick it up. And so what happens here is now it really is possible to, to celebrate in a language that everybody could participate in and actually understand.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so now it's possible to do. And so at the reformations with the emphasis we also have on reading the Bible, that people need to actually have a direct contact with the Bible. We're translating the Bible into regular languages. That people actually could learn to read.
0: Yeah. yeah, Without
1: having all sorts of study, they could, you know, they'd have to do some learning, but not like learning a foreign language. So this was, uh, so we automatically assumed throughout the reformed world that people would always worship and study scriptures in their own language.
0: Okay, so it becomes possible to translate into these now standardized vernacular languages. But why did the Roman Church not do that for, for so long? Why did, the, why did the Roman Catholic Church resist translating into English or French or, or Spanish or what have you?
1: Well, there are two main reasons. One is the Catholic Church emphasized the need to be Catholic in the sense that they love the universality of the language. The fact that it was the same, the same mass everywhere. Okay. The argument would be is Catholicity is the idea that the mass was the same everywhere. It, it, it was a visible representation of the unity of the church. No matter where you went, you could fully participate. Mm-hmm. So that was one thing that was very important. And also, uh, there's a real hesitation about translations of the Bible because it was being used to promote uh, reform doctrine. And so their view is that they didn't think this was a good thing to do, and they were just there's a lot of hesitation about heresy and the use of, of non-scholarly languages. You know, using the vernacular languages, they thought it was easier to control for orthodoxy and emphasize Catholicity by keeping with Latin. I see. But it was not a theoretical objection. After all, the Roman Church itself had had, adapt, had authorized the use of Slavonic. You know, the 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 early language of Slavs. Uh, to use that in the liturgy. So there's nothing sacred about Latin here, but it was that standardization and keeping doctrine safe. You know, just let's keep this under control. Okay.
0: So it's like we can't have people running around translating everything uh, at the same time as all of these doctrinal challenges are happening. Um, well, another yeah. thing,
1: too, is a lot of the Reformed churches actually become very national churches.
0: Right. Like right. Anglican
1: Church is the Church of England. The yeah. Lutheran churches are the churches in Germany and German-speaking Switzerland, German speakers. And the, the fear that language would actually divide the church, that people would start just looking upon themselves as separate churches.
0: Okay, yeah. So in order to preserve unity and, and, and doctrinal fidelity here. Right. Um, but, I mean, it seems like the Reformed churches, right, Is I mean, particularly ours in the Anglican church... Uh, we're starting to return to that, you know, very original principle of the Christian church that we t- t- talked about at the beginning, that, you know, we used Greek because that's what people used, right? Um, so that and that worship should really be understood by the people there.
1: Yes, instead of being innovators, we were actually conservatives. We were using what had always been the principle until through accident that we had no choice, we no longer had a standard language, <laughs> that we began, uh, you know, using a language that had become a dead language, but that was not so from the beginning. Yeah, and so when yeah. it became feasible to use a language, we immediately took advantage of that.
0: So, why then? Maybe the next question then is: after resisting for so long, why did the Roman Church, the Roman Catholic Church, uh, you know, eventually end up moving to vernacular languages? Like, if you go into a you know a, a Roman Catholic parish today, um, unless you're going to a very specific mass you're not, you're, you're, you're not going to hear Latin. You're going to hear it in your language.
1: Well, what happened was that in the 19th century, in the 20th century, we had the, the big great age of missions around the world, especially in Africa and Asia, the great age of missions. And what the Roman church noticed in the 20th century was that the use of the Latin language outside of Europe was an insurmountable obstacle. Hmm. It was very hard for developing clergy, especially. You know, to know enough Latin to really do what you needed to do was almost impossible with African clergy and like, because the language is so different from African languages. You know, for us, it's still they're the same language family into European and the like. When you actually go to a radically different case, this was really a needless obstacle. And so they decide they'd still keep Latin as the official language of the church, but saying they would allow the liturgies to be translated into regular languages, Hmm. vernacular languages. Yeah. And so at the Second Vatican Council, they said, we are authorizing the liturgy to be every, everything in the liturgy to be translated into whatever language people use. If they wish, they can use Latin or they can use that. But they had a new form of the liturgy. They combined the change of being able to use another language with a change to a new liturgy, a significantly mm-hmm. different liturgy than what people had had. So they didn't technically abolish Latin. They said, look, you can use this new liturgy in Latin if you want. But here's what actually happened, Alex. People said, if I'm conservative, I want the old liturgy. Yeah. <laughs> why would I have a... If I want newfangled, why would I... <laughs> being funny there, is why would I take a new liturgy and translate it into a foreign language? The reason we use Latin because it's old, you know, because this is the ancient liturgy.
0: Right. Why not go all the way and just go back to the Tridentine? So, frankly, right. there was
1: yeah. no no market at all basically for the the translated form of the very very rare to find anyone actually would use the new liturgy in latin so latin basically uh it was pretty much stamped out because they were afraid that there'd be a schism in the catholic church there was in france by the way there was Mm. a schism over the change in language that's where with uh uh, monseigneur Lefebvre. uh you know and there there was a there was a schism So to avoid that happening, say, if we start having a Latin Mass and having the regular new Mass, we have the old and the new, people are going to divide the parish into people, which is the real Catholics. So they were afraid Hmm. there would be a break in the Catholic Church, so they basically stamped out the Latin Mass for all practical purposes. Hmm. Hmm. Didn't do it officially, but practically speaking, they made it impossible to go to Latin Mass.
0: Well, I do know, though, that today there's been kind of a revival of the Latin Mass, uh, especially among young Catholics. So what, how does that work?
1: Well, it goes back to Europe again, is those movements have been doing really well. The movements have split away from the mainstream of Catholicism, you know, over the Latin Mass, among other things, the Second Vatican Council, have been doing very well, like in French-speaking countries and the like. Okay. And so what's happened here is Benedict the um said... Maybe a good way to do, you know, we never officially, you know, you can't say something we've done in the past has been wrong. Like we still can use any of the prayer books, right? Going back, we don't say, you know, that uh, because we have a new prayer book, we can't use like the sixteen sixty two, which is our standard. He said, we why I don't think we never really abolished the Tridentine Mass. And so why don't he said I'm going to allow priests. He issued uh, something, he gave permission for priests without the permission of their bishop. They simply could use the Latin, the old traditional Latin Mass, not the new one in, in Latin. They could do that, of course but they could use the old latin mass if they wanted to hmm. and this became really popular a lot of young people uh, really took off with this like in america it's really popular a lot of latin mass parishes and things
0: yeah there are there are
1: so what happened recently i mean really recently of course we like to think we're right at the cusp, cusp of things with word and t- word and table alex but, <laughs> yeah yeah but francis pope francis i think with some reason as far as his perceptions was, that this was being used, a lot of mass sometimes was being used as a way of saying we're somehow more Catholic, that what's happened since then isn't really Catholic. You know, that this was authentic Catholicism. was being presented by some people that way. And he thought that was schismatic. we yeah. were having people who were having a lot of mass, not because they were celebrating part of the history of the church, but that this was the real church as opposed to the Vatican II church, which wasn't real. So he cracked down on this and no longer allows people automatically to say they need special permission to use the Latin mass.
0: Yeah. And that, I mean, that happened this week, right? Like we're not usually this current at word and table, but
1: uh, (laughs) I like to think we're always current.
0: (laughs) This is, this is where our story has taken us to. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's, it's super fascinating. I think that, um, you know, I've actually known, you know, some people who are, you know, old right catholics and they're all so do i yeah very young and and very active and very edgy it's probably not something that people would have expected that actually you know young fervent catholics would be uh, would prefer the latin mass i think that my my favorite little quip i heard about it was the kids are old right uh, <laughs> which, uh that was that was pretty good um so anyway you know well uh, uh that we've we've we have spent a lot of time in the uh in the roman uh catholic church uh, on this episode so let's bring it back to anglicanism um for us in the anglican church what are we committed to in our liturgy obviously the language of our liturgy is very very important to us you know we have these prayer books um that more or less standardize it um but what principles uh what principles guide our um our, our the language of our liturgy
1: there are two fundamental Anglican principles in our liturgy this way. Is one is full intelligibility. You know, we think that people learn as part of what they do in the liturgy. Part of it is our learning, We like the, the liturgy of the word, and that that needs to be fully accessible. So I would say accessibility in intelligibility. So there's no question we have to use language people can understand Is it, from an Anglican viewpoint. And secondly that liturgy is something that we don't watch other people do it's something we do it's the people's work all of us are involved so we need a language that allows everyone to fully participate. Mhm.
0: Mm-hmm. And th- that that doesn't mean right that you know we that the language ceases to be um, reverent right it just means that it can be understood and everybody can participate in it.
1: Right. That's it. but those are the two principles that, frankly, the Roman Church came around to officially. You know, as acknowledged in the Second Vatican Council, the idea of full participation is one of the goals of liturgy. They say it's full participation, and until, so we've always maintained those pr- principles since the Reformation. That again, we want everyone to know what's. The, we don't want to create an air of mystery in the sense that people don't what's going on. As once in an Anglican parish, where uh, the priest thought, wouldn't it be nice if we start having like Latin chants and things, and I remember I was on the liturgy committee and saying, wait, this is many, many decades ago. And I am saying, "As the only person here who actually knows Latin. I don't understand why you would be using somebody else's language.
0: (laughs) So you're the only one, you're you're the only one who speaks Latin there and you're not terribly excited. Well, also, (laughs) I mean, I can understand for
1: a French person, you have to understand Latin is an old form of French. You know, there's a sense of like, this is a family history. But for an English speaker, there's no connection at all. What what are you doing with the picture of my grandfather in your house?
0: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I didn't go to a classical school. Yeah, so hard to hard to hard to call up a lot of feeling for that one. I got to say,
1: I can see understand your warm feelings for Chaucer, but for a French person, we wouldn't have those kind of warm feelings.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. I, you know, I, I, it's it's there is something that resonates, you know, in the kind of roots of your native tongue. I guess so. Um. Well, I, I guess I was maybe I can propose to you a sequel to this episode on air, Father Stephen. I would love to do kind of a follow up to this, uh, kind of talking about the parallel development of our book of the language in our books of common prayer. I think that would be a really good um, kind of follow up to this, and how and why our you know language has changed from one uh, one BCP to the next. You know, from the, all the ones at the beginning to the standardized sixteen sixty two. The you know, oh yeah. Uh, all the way down to the 1928 and the 79 and now the ACNA's 2019.
1: That'd be so. a really good idea.
0: Great. Well, thanks so much, Father Stephen. Any last words on language and liturgy for us?
1: Yeah, I think one thing I'd say is when we talk about language to remember is the essence of solemnity doesn't come, comes from basically being in the presence of God. You mm-hmm. know, anything done in that way is going to take on a dignity. Hmm. So I think we might we might confuse what really gives dignity. Like when I when I train people as part of my work to celebrate the Eucharist, I said, "Remember, you're praying to the living God. You're not reciting something. Else. If you do that, you'll be fine. Hmm. <laughs> people hmm. can worship with you. The yes. real secret to to a, to a dignified, worthy liturgy is how we celebrate. In the sense that I am doing something, I'm serving the living God. If we do that, we're going to have dignity. And if we don't, I've seen. I've seen glorious, um, you know, glorious liturgy. I've seen Latin masses that were, were wonderful, and I'm an old man, I saw those. And I saw some that were really pedestrian.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really
1: badly done, I mean, because people are just going through the motions. And so the heart is, the the key of liturgy is we're serving the litur- living God. If we do that, we'll always have dignity. If we have the sense we're talking to the living God, we're going to behave properly. With the Holy Spirit in the glory of God.
0: The well thanks so much, Father Stephen. Thank you for listening to Word and Table. We'll be back again next week for more on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship. Thanks for listening.